Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Hope everybody had a happy uh, holiday weekend. This is actually still Easter Monday, so many of the markets around the world were closed today, not so in the United States. We had a normal trading day today. And the star of the day, again, uh, is gold. Gold was shining brightly on Thursday before we had the Good Friday holiday. And once again, gold uh, started off strong and finished even stronger. We made a new seven plus year high today. Cash gold settled around $17.16 an ounce, up about 30 bucks. We were about $15 higher, I think, intraday around $17.30. Uh, futures prices were even higher than that. I mean, they may be at an eight year high. Not really sure. There's been a big premium recently in the futures market now over the spot market. But we are going much, much higher in the price of gold. You know, anybody who thinks now, oh, gold has had a big run. Gold's kind of expensive at over 1700 I mean, gold is still one of the best bargains out there, although probably the only bargain that's better is the bargain in silver. Uh, so there's a real uh, bargain basement going on over there. But monetary metals, gold and silver, are probably cheaper than they've ever been if you understand the fundamentals. Because remember, I mean, gold prices were higher than this in 2011. The highest we got was around 1900. But if you look at the monetary climate today versus back then, I mean, a lot more money has been created. A lot more dollars exist today than existed back then, certainly relative to how much gold has actually been mined uh, since that period of time. But if you look at what the Fed is doing, not just how much money they've just printed in the last few weeks, but how much they're committed to print and even how much more they're going to print that they haven't even committed to because they've committed to a trajectory. They've committed to a strategy which guarantees massive money printing because they're printing money to bail out the economy. But the more they print, the more the economy needs to be bailed out. And the government's doing the same thing. All the things the government is doing to help is actually hurting. And so the more they help, the more it hurts. But all of their help requires the Fed. The Fed is making it all possible. Without the Fed monetizing the debt, none of the bailouts could happen. None of the stimulus could happen. So gold is actually really cheap. And the sooner people could buy it, the better. The sooner people could buy silver, the better. The only thing that's really cheaper than the metal 
are the mining companies that are mining the metal. And these stocks had big days again today. They were the stars. Uh, Newmont, which was the big gainer on Thursday, was up 13%. I talked about that. was up only four and a quarter percent today. But that was still a new 52-week high. But look at uh, Barrick Gold, another big stock, up eight and a quarter percent today. New 52-week high. I own a lot of Barrick Gold. Uh, Kinross Gold, another 52-week high, up 11.2%. Yamada didn't hit a new high, but it was up 11.8%. Look at a lot of these stocks. Franco Nevada, 52-week high, up 7%. You know, if you look at the GDXJ, which I talked about on this show, which really got beat up. The junior mining stocks are still down on the year, if you can believe that. But the GDXJ has almost doubled in price since its low two or three weeks ago, which was in, in mid-February. I remember I talked about that on the show, how ridiculous it was that these stocks got sold off so heavily, but a lot of that was liquidity related and people were panicking. I mean, I know people were panicking because some of my own clients were panicking. Fortunately, most of my clients who wanted to sell, I was able to talk them out of it. Uh, but, you know, there were some clients that I couldn't talk out. I tried my best. I mean, there's only so much you can do. I mean, I have clients that sold out on the lows. I mean, not many. Again, maybe one or two that got the absolute low, maybe half a dozen or so might have bailed out. Uh, but believe me, a lot more people wanted to go. I mean, if it wasn't for me with as a little bit of a buffer, Right. Uh, they they may have uh, succumbed to their just fears and just blown out of these stocks. But, you know, why people in gold stocks should have been afraid made no sense at all. What was happening was the most bullish news you can have. That's why I kept on buying more. I kept saying on this show, I kept putting more money into my own gold fund. I bought right up to the low. I bought the low day. I was buying as it was going down because as far as I was concerned, they were giving the stocks away. And if somebody was dumb enough to sell, well, I was going to take advantage of the opportunity and buy. I mean, it must be frustrating for the people who didn't have to sell and who sold these stocks two, three weeks ago. And now they're looking at stocks 50 to 100% higher than where they were when they sold. Now the question is, when do you buy the stocks back? If you sold the stock and that was 50% or 100% higher than when you sold it, what do you do? You see, you're in a very, very difficult position which is why I really didn't want people to sell in the first place. Because I was telling people, look, how much lower do you think these stocks are going to go, even if you ride it out? Because the upside potential was much greater than the downside risk, as far as I can see. So why get out when you might end up in a situation where you've got to buy back in, where the prices have gone up much more than they could have possibly got down if you just wrote it out? Meanwhile, what difference does it make to anybody who still owns these gold stocks? And a lot of these stocks now are at 52-week highs, multi-year highs, even though they went down and they were down on the year a few weeks ago. Does it make a difference to anybody who wrote it out? Does it make a difference that temporarily some fools sold their gold stocks at prices that were very low? No, it doesn't matter. Now, I know some people had no choice, right? I mean, there are people that didn't want to sell, right? Now, not my clients. My clients didn't have any margin. But I know there are people who own stocks on margin someplace else. And they probably had to sell. And I feel very badly for that. But of course, you know, they took a risk by going on margin. I don't believe, you know, people shouldn't be bailed out. I'm going to talk more about that later. But if you take a risk and you go on margin and you're looking to, you know, make more money, if it goes your way, you know, you got to be prepared. If it goes against you first, you can end up losing money, even if you're right. 
you could end up losing money because you don't have the staying power because of the leverage, which is why, you know, my accounts are not on leverage. And so we didn't have a single margin call. So none of our clients had to sell any stocks. But of course, there were some people who wanted to make the decision. But the bottom line is it doesn't matter. The only thing that mattered was if you took advantage of other people's circumstances who either had to sell or just were scared and sold, and then you bought. That was the only thing to take advantage of it. Now, even if you look at where these stocks are, even though some of these stocks are up on the year, compared to the 12% plus gain, I think that gold has made year to date, gold stocks have barely begun to rise. And now that the panic selling is over and the dust has settled, I think cooler heads have prevailed and people are now moving into these stocks. I think the wave is only just beginning, particularly for the smaller stocks. Because again, this GDXJ is still down on the year. It's not even positive yet. So you still have a lot of room just to get back to unchanged on the year. Forget about the fact that gold has made a nice move already this year. And the move is going to be even bigger, right? Because the Fed has just begun to print and people haven't even begun to understand what that means. But, you know, other stocks that made new highs today, look at Netflix. Netflix was up almost 8% on the day. Uh, this is, I think, I don't think it's a record high. It's a, certainly a high for the year. It looks like it got a little higher than that uh, back in 2018 at some point. But, I mean, we're very, very close to a record high in Netflix. Same thing with Amazon. Amazon was up 6.5% today. Not quite a new 52-week high because if Amazon hits a 52-week high, it hits an all-time record high. But both Amazon and Netflix are near their highs. And Amazon is trading at 94 times trailing earnings. Netflix is at uh, 96 times trailing earnings. So these are very expensive stocks getting more expensive. Why people are choosing to gamble on Netflix and Amazon when they could gamble on gold stocks, which are a much, much better buy as far as I'm concerned, their business prospects are improving dramatically. Yes, I know you can argue that, yes, COVID-19 is great for Amazon and great for Netflix. Because while people are staying at home, not working, and the government is printing up money and giving everybody checks, they're watching Netflix and they're shopping on Amazon. Yes, I get that. But that's a very short-sighted view of the world, right? Where money is piling in to the only businesses that haven't been completely demolished by what's happening. Because if you look at all the other retailers that compete with Amazon, their stocks are getting killed. You look at, you know, the brick and mortar, you know, companies uh, that compete with Netflix, you know, movie theaters, whatever, they're all getting killed and all other sorts of leisure and hospitality, right? Nobody is going anywhere. So they're staying home and they're watching Netflix and they're not shopping unless it's on Amazon. I can only imagine how much money now the post office must be losing uh, we obviously have to bail them out because I think they lose money on all the Amazon packages that they deliver, which is yet another subsidy that they get. But, you know, this is how narrow the thinking is on Wall Street. All they can think of is to crowd in to uh, Netflix and, and Amazon. Yes, it's very obvious that these companies are benefiting from what's going on, but the valuations are still ridiculous. Even if they're benefiting, it's not worth buying a stock. And at some point, the bottom's going to drop out of these bubbles. These stocks are going to come down because you can't have a viable economy where the Fed just prints money and people aren't working. And the dollar is going to implode. 
Amazon's going to run out of things to sell. The prices are going to be too high. People aren't going to be able to afford to shop on Amazon anymore. I mean, they're losing their home equity or their gun. I'm going to talk about that. Uh, you know, uh, they've lost their jobs. They're hanging on by shoestrings. Uh, so, you know, rather than buying these types of names, uh, Wall Street is going to have to figure out that the trade that they're missing, right, the elephant in the living room is gold, gold stocks. They're still barely even mentioning. I, I mean, they feel like on CBC they have to mention gold stocks, you know, or gold rather because it's making a new high. And so they mention them like casually in passing. But I still don't see anybody coming on recommending these stocks and recommending them for the right reason. Because gold's going to go up as a monetary alternative to the dollar or to even other fiat currencies uh, that have a lesser problem than the dollar, but still have a problem. The world is going to be looking for a safe haven, not from volatility, not from the stock market, but from central banks, from the Federal Reserve. You know, they keep talking on, on CNBC when they're trying to get people to uh, you know buy into the stock market. They say, don't fight the Fed, right? There's an old saying, you don't fight the Fed. And what they mean is, well, the Fed is printing money, so you want to buy stocks. You don't want to fight the Fed. Look, I don't want to fight the Fed either. I mean, because the Fed cheats. I don't want to go up against an enemy that has an unlimited printing press. I'm betting on the Fed. I'm not fighting the Fed. But the way to bet on the Fed is to buy gold. That's the best way not to fight the Fed. In fact, if you don't own gold, if you don't own gold stocks, you're fighting the Fed. What is the Fed fighting to do? To destroy the dollar. That's the fight. I'm betting the Fed's going to win. They're going to destroy the dollar. So I don't want to own what they're going to destroy. I don't want to bet against the Fed and bet that the dollar survives. I'm going to bet that it fails. I don't think the Fed's going to do the right thing. I'm betting that they're going to keep on doing the wrong thing because that's all they've done. I've never seen them do the right thing. I mean, they did the right thing under Paul Volcker. But since then, since Greenspan came to town, they've never done the right thing. So why would I want to fade that trend, right? This is a beautiful trend. Unfortunately, it's not a, it's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. But it's a trend that I am going to play and I'm going to push it because I don't see any, any, any way the Fed can now get off of this. They're going to keep on printing. The Fed's, the government's going to keep on borrowing so that they have to keep on monetizing. And so this is still early in this rush. So don't think if you're listening to this, don't think, oh, I missed out. You know what? Yeah, you should have bought a few weeks ago. Uh, if you did, great. If you didn't, you know what? You can still buy, right? I mean, it's not too late by a long shot. By a long shot, it's not too late because we got a big drop. These stocks fell. They should have gone straight up. That should have been the initial reaction. When the Fed initially went down to zero and launched QE, gold went down on that news. Gold stocks went down on that news. Talk about a head fake, right? And I said that at the time. I said this was the greatest gift from the trading gods because the people who were selling either didn't know what they were doing or had no control over it because their hands were tied because they were in circumstances that required them to sell. Anyway, I want to talk about this interview that was on CNBC, one of the better interviews that I've seen on, on uh, CNBC. And this one was Scott Waitner was, uh, I guess, the host. He's from Fast Money Halftime Report. And I, I, I've been on with him in the past, so, so Scott knows me. I don't know if he listens to my podcast. Uh, 
you know, probably not. Um, but he had uh, Kamath uh, Palapatia. I forget how to pronounce this guy's name. Chamath Palapataya. I mean, it's a very, it's an Indian name. It's not, it's very difficult to, 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 to pronounce. And I, I, I'm sorry for mispronouncing it. Um, but um, he's a very successful venture capitalist, uh, made a lot of money. He's a billionaire. Um, and so he's a, he's a smart, successful guy. And so he's interviewed by Scott Waitner. And uh, Scott is like completely in shock based on uh, what Kamath is saying. All right. And basically, he's saying that the government shouldn't be bailing out companies like the airlines. The government should let them fail. Right now, of course, I mean, nothing controversial as far as I'm concerned. I mean, uh, Chamath didn't say anything that I haven't said since day one on my podcast. I mean, there was nothing controversial from my perspective. It's all common sense what he was saying. But since nobody says anything that's common sense on CNBC, these guys were shocked, right? I mean, this guy was like, oh, my God, how could you say this? What do you mean let them go bankrupt? How could we let anybody go bankrupt? He, it's like uh, Scott couldn't believe that a guest on CNBC was saying the government should let capitalism work, let companies that have too much debt go bankrupt. Of course he should. Right. The, the, the only thing shocking about the fact that this interview is shocking is that it shocks so many people. This is this is what people should be saying. You know, if CNBC hadn't banned me from being on their network, they would have heard this a long time ago from the very first day. So they wouldn't be surprised uh, by this. In fact, you know, one of the things that uh, Chamath didn't say didn't even come up, which should have come up because he was talking about why it's better for the workers. Right. If the companies go bankrupt and their pensions are underfunded, uh, the workers may come out uh, with a stronger capital position uh, uh, through a bankruptcy than what they're going to end up with now, which you know may be the case. But obviously, to say that none of the workers are going to lose their jobs in a bankruptcy is wrong. I mean, workers are going to lose their jobs. I mean, one of the reasons that these companies are going bankrupt in most cases is their payroll is too is too big. They need to reduce the payroll and maybe there's some unions and maybe they're overpaying some of their workers. And so these uh, labor costs need to be brought down so that the company can be competitive and viable. So that has to happen. So it's not like all the, the workers end up as instant winners. But in the long run, of course, the workers win through a traditional bankruptcy because the companies will survive. Because what happens in a traditional bankruptcy, and this is one thing that Kamath did talk about, is that the equity holders and the unsecured creditors get wiped out and new ownership steps up and now can take a fresh look at the company and kind of restructure it, reorganize it without having a bunch of debt. And they may find out that they need to downsize the payroll, but they'll do that to save the company and to make it viable in the long run so that ultimately a lot of jobs end up being saved because a bankrupt company is turned around and restructured through bankruptcy and now positioned to do well and to thrive in the future. Whereas what the government is doing by bailing them out now is simply setting them up for an eventual failure. And I'm sure a lot more people are going to lose their jobs. But the one thing that uh, didn't even come up, that Kamath didn't even mention this, is the biggest beneficiaries. What I said on my podcast weeks ago, the biggest winners in a normal bankruptcy 
are the customers, the people who fly in the airplanes, the people who stay in the hotels. These are the big winners because when the companies are stripped of all their liability, they don't have all this interest expense. Right now, they don't have to charge as much money because they don't have to pay all the interest on their debt because the debt is gone. Right. So you have a leaner, meaner company. You have a company that's not all levered up. And now you have a company that's not going to need a bank, a, a bailout in the future. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Why are all these companies lining up for bailouts? Because they don't have any money. And worse, they owe money. They are in debt to their eyeballs. Now, whose fault is that? Well, obviously, it takes two to tango. The government's, you know, the companies didn't have to borrow. But, of course, the U.S. Federal Reserve was doing everything they could to entice them into it, right? We had these perverse incentives. Everybody was being rewarded for levering up. 
And one of the reasons I'm sure that a lot of companies uh, felt secure in levering up is because they were convinced if anything went wrong, they would get a bailout. And now we're reinforcing that moral hazard by bailing them out and sending the message that, yes, this is the way to run your business. Lever up to the hilt, make a bunch of money when times are good, and then go to the government for a bailout when times are bad. That's not the message that you want to send. Not if you want to have a free market economy, not if you want capitalism. It's got to be heads you win, tails you lose, right? Not, I mean, uh, so not you win either way and the taxpayer loses. That's what's going on. But, you know, it's not just these companies. A lot of people now are saying, hey, we shouldn't be bailing out the companies. And I agree, we shouldn't be bailing out any of the companies, but we shouldn't be bailing out the individuals either. Nobody deserves to be bailed out. It's not like you should be saying, well, you know, we should bail out the workers. We should bail out individuals, but let the companies fail. No, no, no. It's not, you know, you don't bail out anybody. You need to be consistent. Nobody gets a bailout. Now, that doesn't mean that employees and employers can't work things out, that lenders and borrowers, that landlords and tenants can't get together and work out deals when you know nobody can afford to pay rent or nobody can afford to pay more. I'm all for that. I'm all for private actors coming together and working out deals that are mutually beneficial. What I don't want is the government stepping in and giving anybody a nickel, especially when the government doesn't have any money. You know, again, if we had a viable economy, all these companies, most of them anyway, could survive. And those that couldn't could tap into the capital markets to get money they need, either equity or debt. But also, if companies had to temporarily lay off some workers because you know they were closed for a few months because they weren't doing any business, and they had plenty of reserves to cover some of their fixed overhead, and they have to let their workers go for a few months, the workers should have the money. They should have a savings account. I mean, most people should have a year worth of living expenses in the bank so that if something like this happens, you're fine. I mean, that's how it used to be in America. I mean, if you didn't have a year's worth of savings, there was something wrong with you. Everybody had savings. Who Nobody would want to go knowing, gee, if I lose my job, I'm broke. If I don't get my next paycheck, I can't pay my rent. I can't make my car payment. Why are we going through life like this? This is not the way it used to be. But unfortunately, based on the Fed, based on the way they've been pursuing monetary and fiscal policy, this is the gigantic bubble we've been living in. In fact, I read today that the total number of jobs that were created from the beginning of the 09 recovery until this recession just started last month, we created 22 million jobs. That's it. In the last three or four weeks, 25 million jobs have been lost. It took one month to wipe out all the jobs that were gained in the entire recovery. And that was the longest recovery in the history of recoveries. And it was basically phony if all the jobs were wiped out that quickly. Now, I, I agree. Yes, the order of the shutdowns, right? That accelerates it. But that many jobs that quickly? I mean, remember, that's because so many of the jobs we created were bartenders and waiters and people working in hotels. I was criticizing these low-paying service sector jobs when that's what we were creating, right? And now they're gone, right? You know, easy come, easy go when it comes to these kind of jobs. And the other problem was, 
the employers that were hiring them didn't have the deep pockets. They were leveled up with debt. If we had better jobs, if we were creating more solid manufacturing jobs, if these weren't all low-paying service sector jobs, a lot of them would not have been lost. Some of them would have, but not nearly as many as have been lost. And more importantly, those companies that had to lay off workers temporarily would be able to rehire them uh, when you know the all clear was sounded. That's not going to happen now. Since the employers were over leveraged to begin with, since we had so many companies that were kept alive by the Fed that should have died of natural causes years and years ago, uh, they hired people that never should have been hired. They should have done something else. They should have found more viable employment opportunities. But because of the Fed, that labor was misallocated and misdirected. And so these jobs are not going to survive. And so they're not going to be there. And a lot of these people are going to be unemployed for a long, long time. And, you know, for a lot of people, they're not going to even care. I mean, I've talked about that on the podcast and I got the uh, the actual numbers. Medium, medium income in America. And this is for people that actually have full-time jobs, right? Not This doesn't count the people that work part-time or who don't work at all. The median income where half the people earn less and half the people earn more is $865 per week. That's it. So if somebody was earning the medium income or less, which is half the country, right? If you're we're earning $865, normally when you're unemployed, you get $430 a week, right? So about half of what you made when you were working. So obviously there's a bit of an incentive to go back to work because you'd make more. But of course, you know, you do save money by not working. You don't have to pay the payroll tax on the unemployment benefits. You don't have to pay your commuting costs to get back and forth to work. Uh, maybe if you had childcare, if you're unemployed, you can watch your kids yourself and you can save on some of that money. Um, you know, you don't have to eat out in restaurants. You can eat at home. So you do save quite a bit of money when you don't work. Uh, and so you add that to the value of your unemployment benefits. But today, when you take the $430 in uh, regular benefits and you add the $600 in supplemental benefits, people who are earning $865 to work and having to pay all those costs can now make $1,000 plus, right? More than $1,000, about 20% more than they were making when they were working without any of those costs. And of course, the biggest cost of all of working is the leisure that you don't get, right? The fact that you have to work, that you have to show up and do the work. If you can make more money without showing up, without doing any of the work, and you get to enjoy your leisure and get more money than you were making when you were grinding it out nine to five in a job that you probably didn't like, this is a huge windfall for a, a lot of people. And they're going to milk this thing as long as they can. And since it's an election year, right, it's going to be a bidding war, right? These 20 million unemployed people or however many it's going to be, that's a big voting block. No one's going to take a nickel away from that voting block. So they can coast uh, without working until uh, until the election at a minimum. And who knows, it may be a long while because we're going to be in a recession for a long time. And so nobody uh, may want to take any of these benefits away from anybody during a recession. Meanwhile, you know, real businesses are still closing down. I, I uh, read a story about one of the biggest uh, pork uh, processing companies in the country 
uh, shutting down. I think some of their workers had COVID-19 and now they're shut indefinitely. I mean, this whole production process, we're producing less stuff. The only thing we're producing more of is money. Also, another thing that's going to be uh, we're going to be producing less of apparently is oil. Uh, in fact, Trump was bragging over the weekend in the tweet that uh, OPEC, Russia, other countries had come together and had agreed to reduce output oil production so that oil prices would be higher. And he's you know letting Americans know about the good news uh, that oil prices will be higher. I mean, why is that good news? I mean, yes, it's good news for people in the oil industry. But it's bad news for the people that consume oil, you know, and plus, first of all, a lot of people aren't consuming much oil right now, right? Because they're not driving anywhere, right? They're just at home. Uh, so they're not spending that much money, uh, although they're ordering a lot of products on Amazon. And so those trucks are using uh, oil in order to uh, bring the stuff to your house. Uh, but, you know, when oil prices go up, you know, prices, other prices go up. I mean, what about agriculture? Right. Agriculture is very, very big energy user. The fertilizer takes a lot of energy to, to produce. But just the whole the whole process of farming is an energy intensive business. And so food prices are going to go up if oil prices go up. So it's not like this great news. Yeah, we really meant to make sure that we produce uh, less oil. And of course, in the long run, oil prices are going way up. Right. This was a, a head fake move. Obviously, there's a big disruption uh, to demand for travel and transportation, that will go away. But when the demand comes back, the supply is not. The North American supply is not going to be back where it was, not even close to where it was, because uh, a lot of these guys were being held up by by debt, by the debt bubble, and that has popped. But what's really going to send oil prices higher is going to be the weak dollar. And the dollar was weaker today; it didn't collapse, but it was down. Uh, but you know. Again, the, the, the head fake reaction, dollar up based on this idea that, you know, there's a liquidity crisis, that there's all this dollar debt that needs to be repaid. Most of it doesn't need to be repaid. The Fed's going to inflate it away. I don't think anybody has to worry about their dollar debt. People have to worry about their dollar assets, right? If you're owed dollars, you're the one that's in trouble. If you owe dollars, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're with the Fed. Remember, who is the world's biggest debtor? It's the U.S. government, right? By far, nobody is even close. So the Federal Reserve is going to run monetary policy that benefits the United States, which is the world's biggest debtor. So what type of monetary policy benefits a debtor? Inflation, right? Inflation allows a debtor to get out of debt because it inflates away the value of the liability. So debtors win from inflation because they don't have to pay back the money that they borrowed, right? They pay back the money, but not the purchasing power. So, but if the debtor wins, then the creditor loses. So it's the creditors that are fighting the Fed, right? If you're buying treasuries, if you're buying mortgage backs or muni bonds or any dollar that I'm the debt, you are fighting the Fed, right? You are the enemy of the Fed. You're the creditor. The Fed is fighting you. You want to get on the side of the Fed. You want to be a debtor. So owing dollars is fine, except that you don't want to owe, owe dollars to buy consumer goods. That's dangerous debt to take on, right? These businesses that have dollar debts but have real viable businesses, once they get through this, right, if they didn't take on too much debt, that they kind of got screwed in the liquidity crisis, 
like you know people who had margin debt and then took out too much and had to sell their stocks right at an inopportune time all these companies around the world that have us debt that make it through this short term liquidity crisis it's home free they're just going to coast on because their debt is going to get wiped out as the dollar crashes and inflation uh you know basically obliterates uh, the value of their of their liabilities but as that happens oil prices in us dollar terms are going to go way up. Now, another big story that I heard about over the weekend, and I haven't heard enough about it in the mainstream, although they mentioned it, is the fact that JP Morgan Chase, which is the largest lender by dollar volume in the US, and I think when it comes to mortgage lending, I think they're maybe number three. So they're not the biggest player, but they're a big player. And so they announced that starting tomorrow, if you want to get a, a mortgage, you have to have a minimum FICO score of 700. And you got to put down 20% minimum, right? Now that might say, well, isn't that normal? Don't you need a 20% down payment? You should, but you don't. I mean, the average down payment, I think, is about 10%. And first-time home buyers typically don't even put down that maybe three to 5%, if that, right? When you're selling a home to buy another home, a lot of times you have the down payment because you get the equity from your first home and you roll that into your uh, second home as you're trading up. But when people are buying a house for the first time, a lot of Americans don't have much savings. And with these ridiculously high real estate prices, they can't afford uh, to put down 20%. So first of all, why would uh, the bank be doing this? Because clearly- by imposing these higher lending standards, they're not going to make nearly as many uh, mortgages as they would have. And of course, they make money on mortgages. So by loaning out fewer mortgages, they're going to have less earnings right, on those loans. They're not going to make as many mortgages, so they're not going to earn as much money. Why are they doing that? Well, they're saying they're just too busy. They don't have the time to evaluate them, which I don't believe. I mean, you hire people. You've got extra work. There's probably plenty of people who aren't working. They can they can uh, approve these mortgages from home. I mean, they said they're busy, you know, processing all these government uh, loans and things like that. Look, I believe if 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 they if there was demand, they would find out a way uh, to to make it. So I think the real reason that they don't want to make these loans is because they don't want to lose money. I mean, they want to make mortgages. They just want twenty percent down. They just want to loan to money to people that have a high credit score because they want to make sure that they get the money back. See, I've always said that's that's the hard part about the lending process. See, the easy thing is to loan out money, right? Anybody can make a loan. The key is to get your money back, right? That's that's where all the money is made is the getting your money back, right? Anybody could just make loans, right? If it was if that's all it was about, you can make loans all day long. The key is to make loans that are good, that don't go bad where you get back all the money you loaned out, plus you get your interest, right? And so the bank is saying, we don't want to lend now. The question is, why were they willing to lend to people in the past without a 20% down payment or a lower FICO score? Because they didn't give a damn, because times were good, right? Everything was easy peasy. The Fed was printing all this money. Rates were really low. The bubble was going. I mean, they tightened up on lending standards a little bit after the 2008 financial crisis. But as that crisis was further and further away and everything seemed to be fine, right, they gradually started going back to their old ways of lowering up on lending standards so they can make more loans and so they can make more money. 
And probably one of the reasons they felt secure in doing that, ah, if everything goes wrong, we'll just get bailed out again. I mean, we got bailed out last time. So at the end of the day, when the music stops playing, if there's another crash, well, you know, no, there's not going to be any consequences, right? The Federal Reserve is going to come to the rescue. The government's going to bail us out. And so they went back to those ways of lax lending standards. And now all of a sudden, right, the horses have left the barn, right? And so now they have to tighten up on, on these lending standards because they know that loans are going to start going bad. And so they're not going to make loans into this market unless they have a big down payment and unless they have a high uh, credit borrower. Well, now, what does this mean? This means that far fewer Americans are going to qualify for a mortgage. And if it's if JP Morgan Chase is doing this, they're all going to do it, right? I mean, they're all going to follow the leader, right? Because they wouldn't do it unless they had to. And so the rest of the lending community is going to follow suit. And so that means that a lot of people who a few months ago could have qualified for mortgage are not going to qualify. And a lot of the people who do qualify, based on how much money they have to put down, they can't buy anywhere near as expensive a house as what they could have afforded. I mean, maybe you have enough down payment to buy a half a million dollar house if you need 10% down. But if you got to put 20% down, well, now the most expensive house you can buy is $250,000. So the guy that wanted to sell the $500,000 house, he can't sell it to you anymore unless he lowers his price down to $250,000. And you know what? That's what's going to happen with a lot of real estate. See, the only way a lot of houses are going to get sold in this market is if the prices come down low enough to where people can actually qualify for the mortgage because they have to have the down payment. Now, if you're not willing to drop your price, then you're not going to sell your house. Now, of course, not everybody has the luxury because sometimes you have to sell the house, right? And so that's that's the market. That's all you can get, right? Real estate prices are going to collapse because of this, right? They were propped up by lax lending standards. Well, they're going to collapse as those lending standards are tightened. That's exactly what happened in, in, in 2008. And of course, what does this mean about the wealth effect? Because this whole phony recovery was deliberately built on the foundation of a wealth effect from real estate and stocks. Well, if real estate prices are collapsing because the, the pool of potential buyers has been diminished, and people can't pay as much for houses anymore because they can't borrow as much to buy them. And now real estate prices come down. What happens to your home equity? Poof, it's gone, right? Well, now you have the reverse wealth effect. But another thing happens when your home equity evaporates. Your desire to make your mortgage payment goes away too, especially when you have a moratorium on foreclosures, right? If I know that my lender can't foreclose on me, why make a mortgage payment? What's the point? The minute I have no equity in my house, I mean, I'm not building equity by making payments. I'm already underwater. And, and so the payments don't do me any good as the homeowner. They just help out the bank. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So once you get a bunch of homeowners with negative equity, they stop writing checks. You know, I mean, they would mail in their keys, except why bother if you can live mortgage-free and rent-free? And of course, you know what else you do when you stop making your mortgage payments? Stop making your property tax payments. Why bother, right? Let the bank, let the government get the property taxes from the bank, because that's what happens. Right? You don't make your property taxes. The, the city gets a lien on your property that gets in front of the mortgage lender so that when the house is ultimately sold, the government gets its money and the lender just takes a bigger hit. So people stop making their mortgage payments. They stop making their property payments, which means, A, the governments don't get the property tax revenue. Uh-oh. But now the bank's losses are building because not only is their collateral down because your house has gone down and it's not worth what you borrowed, but now you've got a lien for unpaid taxes. And what else do people stop doing, right? Once they stop paying their mortgage and once they stop paying uh, their property taxes, you know what else they stop paying? Maintenance bills. I mean, some of them they do. Yeah, if water is pouring through uh, your, your roof, yeah, you don't, you know, you've got to patch that up, right? You don't want to live with the rain coming down. But there are a lot of repairs that can wait, right? You'll or you'll just make a you know rinky dink repair. You're not going to really do it. Hey, I don't care. Just just let it last a year or two. Use some cheap material. Just patch it up. Make it. You know, you're not going to put a lot of money into repairs if a you have no equity in the house and you know you're out in a few years once they finally get around to kicking you out, right? So the properties uh, end up uh, falling into disrepair. So by the time the bank gets you out and gets their collateral back, not only do they owe back taxes, but they need to put a lot of money into fixing up the place because you neglected it for the last few years that you owned it. And then, of course, the other thing that people do, and I talked about this a lot during the other housing bubble, before people leave a house that's going into foreclosure, sometimes they actually gut the place. Sometimes they actually take out, you know, they take out the appliances right? They take out some of the things that gave it extra value that were there when they bought it. They move out with those things. I mean, some people even rip out the plumbing, especially if you got copper pipes or something and there's, you know, those things are going up. So this is a real nightmare for the housing market, but also for the banks, right? Think about this. So the banks are going to make fewer loans, right? Because of higher standards. So they're going to make less money, but now they're going to start losing money as the loans they already made with lax lending standards go bad, and there's not enough collateral to make them whole. So the banks are in a lot of trouble here. Again, this is one of the reasons that I have avoided owning the banks. Now, of course, the government's not going to let them fail, right? So they're not going out of business. So they're going to get bailed out. But that doesn't mean they're going to be uh, good investments anytime soon. And it's not good for the country that these banks are being bailed out. And of course, where is the money coming from to bail them out? It's being created, right? We're having inflation to bail them out. And, you know, the final uh, thing I want to talk about again on the podcast is similar to the way I ended uh, my last podcast on uh, a Bitcoin. And, you know, for those of you who think that, you know, Bitcoin would be catching a bid uh, with the strength of gold, it's not happening. You know, when I recorded my podcast on Thursday, Bitcoin was about 7,300, I think. Uh, when I was doing it. And right now it's about 6,800, 6,900. So Bitcoin has actually sold off a bit as the price of gold has been rising. And I saw it lower, I think over the last you know couple of days or maybe today, I think it was down around 6,600. So it's bounced off a little bit. 
uh, from its lows. But Bitcoin has been coming under some selling pressure, as I think it should, and it will come under a lot more selling pressure. But I read a particular article that I thought was very ironic. And I, I wanted to talk about it because I forget the guy that wrote it, but his thesis was that Bitcoin was about to become the equivalent of cigarettes in a prison, right? And what the article was referring to is the fact that in prisons, uh, cigarettes are used as, as money, as a medium of exchange and a store of value. And so his idea was, aha, you know, now Bitcoin is going to be in the real world what cigarettes are in prisons. And I thought that was a perfect example because it really helps illustrate why Bitcoin is not money and why it will never be money. But of course, it didn't occur to the guy that was writing this, right? Because he couldn't see the irony or, or the problem because Bitcoin and cigarettes have nothing in common. See, there's a, there's a reason that cigarettes are money. Right. And, and, and basically, it's two reasons why they're money. In fact, cigarettes were also money uh, uh, in uh, Europe after the Second World War. People were using a lot of American GIs in Europe were using cigarettes as money. Right. But there's still money in prisons. Well, why are cigarettes money? Well, one is that they're hard to come by, right? When you're in prison, you just can't go and get yourself some cigarettes. You got to smuggle them in, right? You got to have a connection. You got to bribe a guard, whatever. So there's a lot of people who smoke who are in prison. There's a lot of smokers, right? And they can't get cigarettes, but they get smuggled in. So they're very scarce. And for the people who smoke, they really want them. There's demand. There's real utility, because you smoke that cigarette and you get the enjoyment, especially if you're an addict. I mean, I've never really been a smoker, so I don't really know the pleasure of smoking a cigarette. But when you're a smoker, I mean, you got to smoke that cigarette and you derive a lot of pleasure out of the act of smoking it. And so cigarettes are scarce, right? And they have intrinsic value because they can be smoked. And they're easy to exchange, right? Because you just, you have a pack of cigarettes and there's what, 20 or 30 cigarettes in there. You can have one cigarette, two, three. So you, how many cigarettes do I give you, right? They're easy to divide up. And each cigarette is pretty much the same as every other cigarette. So really a pack of cigarettes is like ideal money when you have nothing else to use because you're in a prison. And, you know, even if you are not a smoker, right? Let's say you're in prison and you don't smoke. That doesn't mean you can't accept a cigarette uh, as a payment. Because you know that somebody else in that prison is going to smoke. And as long as there's enough people in the prison who smoke, those cigarettes have demand, even the people who don't smoke them themselves. And the other good reason that they're money is because you can store the value. Now, what value are you storing? Well, the cigarette can be smoked immediately, or you can wait and smoke it next week or next month. Now, I'm not really sure because I'm not a smoker. I don't know when cigarettes go bad. I mean, I don't think, you know, you could, you could smoke them in 10 years. Maybe, maybe the tobacco goes bad. I don't know what the shelf life is of a pack of cigarettes, but let's say that they last long enough that they're going to get smoked, right? By somebody in that prison, right? They're not just going to be saved indefinitely, but the fact that you can store the value by not smoking them, right? And now somebody else can smoke them. It's perfect money. It's scarce. It's a store of value. It's a medium of exchange. It's a unit of account. It works as money. Is it as good as gold? No, because gold's going to last for thousands of years. You never have to worry about your gold going bad, right? So gold is better money than cigarettes. But if that's all you got is cigarettes, cigarettes work pretty good, right? 
And so this guy is saying that, hey, Bitcoin is going to be like cigarettes. See, but there's a big difference here. You can smoke a cigarette. You can't do anything with Bitcoin. So why would Bitcoin have value? What gives cigarettes value is not just that they're scarce, but that they're smokers in prison who want them. If everybody in prison quits smoking, if there isn't a single smoker in that prison, then all those cigarettes are worthless to a prisoner. What gives them value is the fact that some people want to smoke them. If all the smokers quit, the fact that they're scarce doesn't matter. It has to be scarce and it has to be valuable. Cigarettes are only valuable to a smoker. They're valuable to a non-smoker because there's a smoker who wants them. And if you want something from that smoker, you can give him cigarettes that he wants and he'll give you something that you want, right? Uh, and, and maybe that you don't want. Maybe one way you, you don't get raped in prison is by giving the rapist some cigarettes, right? And so maybe you don't smoke cigarettes, but if you know the guys who are raping other guys smoke cigarettes, you want those cigarettes. Because if you could get out of being raped by giving somebody some cigarettes, that's a powerful incentive to get yourself some cigarettes. But Bitcoin, nobody can do anything with Bitcoin. You can't use it. You can't smoke it. So it's not going to be money, even if it's scarce, even if there's just 21 million of them, if that's scarce, 21 million of something, if that's scarce, who cares? I mean, yes, right now people want Bitcoin to gamble with it, to speculate with it. Okay, well, what if they quit gambling with Bitcoin? Right? It's like people quit smoking. Now, no one's going to quit gold. I mean, people were going to say, well, Peter, you can't smoke gold. That's right. You can't smoke gold, but you can make jewelry out of it. You can conduct electricity with it. You can fill a cavity with it. There are all sorts of things that you can do with gold, just like the fact that you could smoke a cigarette. You can use gold in the real world. And those qualities that gold has can be used immediately or they can be stored to be used later. And that is the store of value. The utility of gold can be used in the future. 10 years from now, 100 years from now, it can be used, right? Just like cigarettes can be smoked in the future. You can't use your Bitcoin in the present, so you can't use it in the future. And using it doesn't count by giving it to somebody else. Transacting with it is not using it. You have to have a use that is separate from the transactional use. Otherwise, there's no underlying basis for it being valuable. And therefore, it can't store value if it doesn't have its own use. Now, some people will say, yeah, well, you can't do anything with paper dollars. Oh, yes, you can. You can pay your taxes with paper dollars, right? If you want to pay income taxes, you better have those dollars. And if you don't have the dollars, you could go to jail. So the government says you better have this paper to pay your taxes. And it's also legal tender, right? I mean, every store accepts it. So there are uses for, for dollars. But you know, I thought a great example on why the dollar has value because you accept it in taxes. This is an example. I think I've used it once before, but you know, I have a lot of new listeners to my podcast. So a lot of people might not have heard uh, this example and I didn't make it up. I got this from my dad a long time ago, uh, but it has to, do, has to do with a neighborhood bully. What if there's a neighborhood bully and the bully is like, goes around beating kids up. And then the bully says, look, I'm going to sell this little piece of paper and you, you give me $5 and I'm going to sign this piece of paper and I'm going to hand it to you. And if you have this piece of paper, when I come and get you, if you show it to me, I won't beat you up. Right. But if you don't have this piece of paper, I'm going to kick the shit out of you. Right. And 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 it's and it's a bearer instrument. Right. He's creating this piece of paper 
but whoever has it is not going to get beat up. So when the bully comes, all you have to do is show him the piece of paper and now you're not going to get your ass kicked, right? Because he's going to respect the value of his notes because he wants to be able to keep printing them and keep using them, right? Because now, you know, he can get whatever he wants by making up these notes uh, that will people can now hold and negotiate them with one another because they have value because people don't want to get beat up, right? And so now the bully comes around and he and he, he stops you and then you pull out the note and he leaves you alone. You don't have the note, he kicks the crap out of you. So there's a lot of demand for that note. Does the piece of paper have any intrinsic value? No, none whatsoever. It's just a piece of paper. But if you don't have it, you're not going to get your ass kicked, right? Well, that's kind of what the government does with the dollar, right? Here's these dollars. Every year, you got to pay your taxes. You don't have the dollars at the end of the year to pay your taxes. I'm locking you up. I'm putting you in jail. All right, well, I'm going to accumulate these, these, uh, these notes. I mean, my dad used to joke, say, look, if the government accepted taxes in peach pits. If the government said every year you got to pay your taxes in peach pits, we'd all be collecting peach pits because we need the peach pits to pay our taxes. So the government collects taxes in dollars. So even though the U.S. dollar has no intrinsic value anymore because it's just a piece of paper, it's still legal tender and we need it to pay our taxes. So that's why it can function as money. It's not going to function well as money because it's not going to be a good store of value long term. In fact, now it's not even a store of value short term with the Fed cranking them off the printing presses the way it is. But Bitcoin doesn't have any of that going for it. It's not legal tender. The government doesn't take Bitcoin. Yes, you can sell your Bitcoin to get dollars to pay your taxes, but you can't send the government your Bitcoin in payment of taxes. They won't take it. Now they're going to say, well, you can't pay your taxes in gold. You know, as a matter of fact, you could. You can actually send gold. The government will accept uh, legal currency. You could take U.S. gold pieces, $20 gold eagles, and you can pay your taxes with them, except you'd be an idiot to do it because the government only accepts the face value of the coin. So you're not going to give the government a $20 uh, coin where it says $20 face, where the coin is worth $2,000. You have to be a fool uh, to pay your taxes in gold, but you can if you want to. If you want to be that fool, the government does take gold, only it has to be in the form of legal tender. So it has to be uh, a coin. Uh, but yes, you can sell your gold to get taxes, but there are real buyers for your gold. You don't need uh, another gold speculator because gold is in demand in industry, gold's in demand in, in consumer electronics. So Bitcoin doesn't have any of that. So I thought it was very ironic that. This guy wrote an article specifically about how cigarettes are money. And it was a pro-Bitcoin article without him appreciating how Bitcoin and cigarettes have absolutely nothing in common in that they have, you know, no, you know, in that one has no intrinsic value and one doesn't. So it's actually an easy way to understand why Bitcoin will never be money. And if it's not going to be money, what's it going to be? Nothing. It was invented to be money. That was why it was invented. But if it can't be money, then no matter how much they try to reinvent it, they're never going to have anything. You can't make something out of nothing. Anyway, that's it for now. Uh, take care, everybody.